Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. And welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn, and I'm joined by my childhood friend, Christopher Dow. Out the drawer and into the bag. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. You're an expert treasure hunter. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games of all time. Announcement! <laughs> here we go youtube search for our three cents on youtube and please subscribe to the channel loads of great videos on there including my recent weekly playthrough of the original rayman on the sega saturn twitch www.twitch.tv slash o3c podcast subscribe to that as well so you can tune in to watch us stream live instagram at o3c podcast Please follow us there as well. We're posting loads of fun stuff about what we're playing and also have our amazing video content on our IGTV channel as well. And Patreon. If you're up for supporting us just a little bit more than you already are by simply listening to the podcast, you can become a Patreon for a few pennies a month and get some amazing perks like custom artwork that we're creating for our dedicated fans, access to the super duper exclusive our Three Cents Discord channel, and there's a whole host of excellent Patreon-exclusive full bonus episodes, like our most recent one, all about architecture in video games, which was really good fun to record, and I certainly enjoyed the opportunity to look at some of my favourite video games from, from a different angle. So, this week, we have our 23rd favourite video games of all flipping time. Two and three. Whee. But before we do that, it's time to return to the quiz. This is mine. So, the score currently stands at 39 points to Chris and 37 to Minty. It's close. In the computer game The Sims, how many simoleons does each family start the game with? Two. Oh, no, because simoleons is the currency. <laughs> oh, I've never played it, so... <laughs> have, have another blast, Minty. 1,500. <laughs> I'm going to say 1,000. Well, the correct answer is 20,000, and Minty is closest (laughs) by only being off by 18 and a half thousand. (laughs) So the point goes to Minty. Yeah. Well, he can have that. Just just remember, I I was thinking of you, Minty. Yeah. (laughs) That's what happens when you let your guard down. Plus, also, your first guess was close as well. You said two, and it was two. Zero 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 zero, <laughs> and zero mean nothing. So essentially, you had it right Bang on, on your first guess Spot anyway. Right in a different way. Yep. So the score is now thirty-nine to thirty-eight. One point in it. Of course, all these margins are going to be rendered mute by the extraordinary quiz finale that I have planned, which will probably be worth about four billion points. So <laughs> there we go. So we've had another question come in from the social media sphere. We were directed to a tweet from Game Tripper UK by our good friend, Yoan Gwyn. And this tweet said, if you had to introduce somebody to gaming and they'd never played a single game in their life, which game would you start with and why? I thought this would make for an excellent discussion. So, Chris, what do you think? Well, this is a question I've thought about before in a, in a loose way. Because I've sat down and thought, okay, hypothetically, if I am to one day have children, how am I going to introduce them to to the hobby that I love? And that's going to be, Mm. you know, from tabula rasa, starting from nothing. So it it may seem a bit like going, oh, no, little Jimmy isn't allowed electronic toys. He plays with his cup and ball and wooden train set. But I've (laughs) I've always (laughs) I've always thought that I'd I'd want to start someone like whether it's a child or, or otherwise with something simple like eight bit games. Yeah. 
and and I think that's because so much of my appreciation of modern games comes from having this understanding and relationship with a developing medium that I've seen across my whole life. So I think I'd pick something classic like Super Mario Brothers or, or even like a, a side-scrolling brawler like Double Dragon as one of the first games that I played because they are games that are immediately readable and very quickly explainable. It's, it's just like, you know, you, you hand someone a controller, you say what the buttons do, and then it's just a case of saying, go to the right and that button makes you jump or go to the right and that button makes you punch. And, and I think the biggest challenge if you've never played games before, and I've seen this with like my mum who's never had an interest, is translating what you're doing on a screen to what is happening in your hands, like the actual input yeah. device, is, is the biggest struggle for people. And, and it can be completely alien and, and people just lose, lose the plot straight away if, if it's not something you want to persevere with. But by choosing something really simple, I think everything else can then evolve and follow quite naturally. And then if people do have like, you know, an actual interest in it, you, you can almost ramp up as you go. You know, it's, it's the same as I thought before, like we've got the, the remakes of Tony Hawk's one and one and two coming out in, a, in just a couple of weeks now. If you've never played a Tony Hawk's game before, that will be a miserable experience because it, it's the type of game that uses about 500 inputs at once. Mm-hmm. And, and in order to do well, you need to have full mastery of all of your fingers. It's like a all finger separation. Yeah. And, and going back in time, it, it takes some of that challenge away. And it's just a case of saying, okay, that thumb is going to control that and that thumb's going to do that. And, and I think that's probably the, the best way to get people involved. Excellent. I had similar thoughts because I sort of thought about this two ways. I thought practically, how would I introduce somebody to a video game? And I think you're right that actually the simpler, the better. Because like you said, I mean, unless you've been keeping up with the evolution of technology, you'll be totally lost when they say you need to like press an analog stick in to issue a command, (laughs) which is still something that I find uh, difficult to get my head around. And it feels Um, horrible. "How How do they put a button there? How do they put a button there? Ridiculous. And I think, yeah, you, you're hard. You can't really go wrong with Mario. Like it's so it's so simple, but also shows so much creativity. But then I also thought, actually, what is it that I love about video games so much, and and how do I how do I communicate that to somebody in in one experience? And because for me, video games, yeah, they're fun but also they're something that that resonate deeply within me. And the games that I love the most are the ones that that really, you know, strike a chord. And it's about showing what the medium can do outside of, say, you know, a film or a book or anything else. And so for me, it's got to be something that is beautiful, that actually presents a story and that feels good to play. And the best example for that, for me, is Ori and the Blind Forest. It's oh, a, it's a, pretty good. It's a simple 2D plane, you know, so it's quite easy to see sort of what's going on. It controls incredibly well. And even though it does use several commands, it introduces you to them uh, slowly, one by one, allows you to get used to them before then introducing something else. It presents a beautifully moving story. It, it really showcases the best of what video games are. And especially in this last sort of week or so, I've been thinking about the game a lot. And the more time that's passed since I first played it, the more I'm realising how much of a profound effect it had on me and how many times I've, fe- I've caught myself comparing other games to it. And, and that's a yeah. real sign that it set a benchmark for me. And I think, yeah, to be honest, if we were to do our list again, I, I think it would stand a, a very good chance of being in my top 10. Oh, bloody hell. Wow. How about you, Minty? Yeah, interesting one. Um, I think, for me, 
the tack I would take is what are what are the things when I've tried to sort of introduce somebody to a game? What have been the main things that they've complained about? And um, one is, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what these buttons do, and I'm not very good at it. So I think for me, the clear entryway into video gaming is maybe a little bit of a, a left field one, but I think it's Kirby's Epic Yarn. Oh, that's a good shout. Oh, what a great answer. It looks great. It's got a really nice, unique aesthetic. It's a playful thing to look at and a, and a lovely thing to play. It's got a very simplistic story. You're helping this, uh, this little fella get back his kingdom or whatever. And crucially, you can't die. Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the things that puts most people off, like starting a new video game. So, oh, I've died again. I'm just, oh, do you know what? No, you, you take it. You carry on. But if you, if you give them a game where they can't die, then they're, they're, you know, they're basically forced to at least beat one level, which is just go to the right. Yeah. Be delighted by swinging on a button or turning your body into a little car that goes beep, beep. Every <laughs> wonderful and joyous every single time. It's always the horns, yes. isn't it? Yeah. It's always the horns. <laughs> yeah. And then like, as they beat levels... It sort of introduces nice little things like, oh, I see you're enjoying this game. So here's a new friend where you can play an old level, but you're playing hide and seek. Mm. And now that you're good at it, I think you'll be all right. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that will be my pick. Lovely. I think that's a perfect answer. I, I think so, too. I, I think that's absolutely nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the correct answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so... What have we been playing this week? Minty, what have you played this week? Oh, I'm sorry to say I haven't picked up anything new. That's all right, Minty. Still <laughs> chipping away at the old ham that is Tales of Vesperia, <laughs> Bug Fables, Saints Row 4. I think that's it for me. I'm just sort of making slow progress towards beating them. Nice. And that's it. Nice. Yeah. I, To be honest, I haven't played a huge amount this week either. I had a very, very busy work week. But I have been continuing to make my way through Evergate and Raji and Overland, all of which are very, very good. I did treat myself to a new game, though, because it was on sale in the eShop, and that is the port of the original Star Wars Episode One racer game from... I guess the N64 and the PC and was it on the Dreamcast? I think it was, yeah. 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 And and to be fair, I've really been enjoying that. I mean, it doesn't look good. It's a it's a you know, because it, they haven't spruced up the visuals at all. It's a bit sharper, which is nice, but but the sense of speed and fluidity of movement whilst racing still feels just as great as it did, you know, I mean like twenty years ago. And and there's loads of content in there as well. So yeah, I've I've been enjoying that. That's been that's been good fun. The other thing I did do, following on from answering the user question last week, I did end up buying the remaster re-release of Aladdin and the Lion King double pack on the Switch. Oh, whilst it was on sale, like I got it for about twelve quid or something. What do you think? And I played through Aladdin, which was really really good fun. It's quite unforgiving, like a lot of games yeah. from that era. So I was yeah. you know quite grateful of the rewind function they mapped onto one of the shoulder buttons just to you know help smooth out some of those rough edges. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It looked every bit as, as good uh, and as true to the spirit of the film as, as I remembered. And it was great to sort of finally play through some of those levels. And yeah, I, I did give the, the Game Boy version a quick go because that's also on there. And that yeah. is absolutely unplayable. It is, as fuck. <laughs> it is awful. Yeah. <laughs> My yeah. God, it's so poor. It's so poor. But... What I was saying before, I, I love that it's there. Yeah. 
it's a lovely, lovely collection. It really is. Like I said, there's loads of content in terms of like behind the scenes stuff and all the different variations of the game. It's strange you're talking about that because I actually had a message on Twitter from at Kaspar Myrowitz. Hello, Kaspar. He basically said he, he enjoyed us talking about this game when it came up last mm. week and wanted to mention that he was disappointed in the collection because it doesn't include the SNES version of Aladdin because that was uh, developed by Capcom rather than Virgin Interactive. Ah. And and he says it's a much better game. It's like really? I, I was aware that it was different, but I had never played it. Yeah. And he he makes mention that it was directed by Shinji Mikami, who directed Resident Evil 4. Oh, wow. So that's where he got his start essentially doing the, the yeah. licensed Aladdin game on the SNES gosh how about that it might be something we, we should um, check out at least for our emulation yeah. or something just to compare well, that's a heck of a piece of trivia uh, fair play because um, it does include a final cut version of Aladdin which is basically like they've made a few tweaks just to smooth out some bugs and glitches that were in the game yeah. so I don't know whether or not that is then you know more, more of a faithful experience to the to the SNES version but they do they do have the SNES and the Mega Drive version of uh, The Lion King, which I started playing through and I was quite enjoying until I got stuck on what I've now come to understand is a notorious, infamous monkey puzzle. And <laughs> I, I just can't figure out my way past it, which is a shame because I was actually quite enjoying it. It looks really, really lovely. It's got beautiful, beautiful animation and, and sprite art. But those those goddamn monkeys, like, oh, bloody monkeys. Don't know what to do. Don't know what to do. I don't really want to look it up because it feels it doesn't doesn't feel like in the spirit of uh, of playing like a retro game. Hmm. But I so I'm, I might give it another go. But yeah. Have you tried simply utilizing a banana or similar piece of delicious fruit? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, that is not one of the options from the. They are uh, unreceptive to fruit. They yeah yeah beyond bribery. Have you tried blowing your anus up to an unimaginable <laughs> size and painting it a different color? <laughs> <laughs> as a word of warning before i try that approach you may want to unsubscribe from the instagram channel <laughs> I'm, I'm sure i read at some stage that that monkey puzzle in the lion king yeah was essentially put in put in the game to stop people renting it beating it and then returning it straight away ridiculous because that's that's only on like the second or third stage isn't it the, the yeah. monkey stuff yeah it's on the i just can't wait to be king themed section yeah like for anyone who's not played it you you have to manipulate the direction of hanging monkeys don't you that then will pick up and throw you around a sort of maze yeah and it's it's hellish it's no fun yeah. at all but <laughs> I, I, I beat it as a kid i i remember beating it because i got further into the game when i was a kid yeah so i think it was very much a case of this is the cartridge i have for the next few months so i'm just going to persevere and get through it <laughs> yeah i will i will give it another go at some point I have also, as I mentioned at the beginning, I've also been continuing my playthrough of Rayman as well, which uh, the last session you saw have. me take on the Cave of Scops, which is a world I never beat as a kid in the original game. So it was fun to finally be able to play through it and uh, and tick that off. And it went very, very smoothly, a lot sm smoother than I thought it was going to. So all I've got left to do in the game now is, is go back through and, and round up all the remaining Electoons so I can unlock the final world and and finish the game. So hopefully my next, my next play session will be me finishing that game off. But that's been really good. How about you, Chris? What have you played this week? Well, following on from last week, I dumped another bag of 40 games at CEX. Oh, for crying out loud, I'm trying to keep <laughs> our net games at a, a positive value. <laughs> Seriously, it's, it's, I'm, 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 oh, I'm shouldering this burden for all of us. I, I played a few this week, but 
I'm, I'm still having this clear out. And, and similar to before, the rules are basically, one, do I have access to this game already via Steam, which in a lot of cases I do, or is it really you know cheap enough that I can pick it up in the future if I want to play it? And two, is there anything special about the physical release that means I should keep that over having like a, a digital PC version? Yeah. And, and just because of the nature of things, like the original Xbox and, and arguably the 360 as well, were essentially just PCs in a box. Yeah. So so those <laughs> platforms kind of take, have taken the biggest hit. So I've got rid of stuff like Left 4 Dead because I have it in my Steam library. Uh, I got rid of stuff like the Orange Box and all the other Valve games as well because, again, they're going to run a lot better on my laptop than they do on a you know, yeah. 15-year-old 360. And unsurprisingly, though, it's consoles like the Wii and the Vita that I, I haven't been getting rid of stuff because they mostly had releases that use the hardware in some way which which you know keeps the games being something that needs to be on the original platform if that makes sense yeah so those those libraries haven't gone down but yeah the the Xbox especially has taken a big hit and it it does still feel quite good just to have a clear out like yeah. like maybe maybe this is the start of just the the waves crashing out but week at a time <laughs> in terms of games played uh, i had an evening uh, just a couple of nights ago playing fall guys that you mentioned oh, last week jonathan with yeah. with georgia and a couple of friends how did you get on as a group it is really fun yeah um, like a, as a as a local group we were just essentially like having a go once you're disqualified you just pass the pad to the next person oh nice and and i think that kept me far more interested than i would have been if i was just playing solo like in the afternoon yeah. because it's kind of i think it's very much about like you know, you're having a laugh, you're, you're kind of enjoying failing because it's funny that someone got dumped off the side of a stage or whatever. <laughs> and and if it was me on my own and no one around, I think I'd get quite frustrated at times <laughs> because there are stages, especially the team-based challenges, where yeah. you, you can lose and it feels like there is literally nothing you could have done yeah. to help. It's like you're, you're just paired with people that are not going to get through that that stage. And, and the other game I played through the entirety of, it popped up on Steam. Sometimes it just has like recommendations. It was a game called Open World Game, colon, the Open World Game. <laughs> okay. And it's essentially like, a, it's a parody title that, that supposes that most modern open world games now just have you essentially clearing a mini-map of icons. So it says, okay, well, why don't we just reduce the game to just a mini-map and icons? And and you you control like the little arrow marker that would have represented your character in, in a normal game. And you just roam this wide map looking for groups of icons that kind of suggest collectibles or boss battles or, or like the relationship moments like Xenoblade. And whenever you reach them, it's as simple as just tapping a few buttons on the keyboard to, to clear it like a sort of Simon Says style puzzle thing. And then you just watch your completion percentage go up slightly. That's brilliant. It's, it's really good fun. It's really good fun. And I, I think... It would get boring if it didn't reward every single pickup with, ready for this big drum roll, sopping, yeah. weeping, perspiring, positively drenched lore. Because every, sing- every single thing you pick up has a body of flavor text. Oh, every single one. And there's, there must be like three, four hundred collectibles in this game. And everyone yeah. has, a, has a little paragraph. And I, I don't know why the developer put that much time into it, but it makes the whole experience actually worthwhile uh, to play oh, that's great and i'd really recommend it it's free to play oh nice like, there is a yeah. there's downloadable content if you want to pay a few quid to support the developer and, and get a few bonuses but i think the the crux of it you you'd get the joke from from the free version and i mean the, the last good parody game i played was was called dlc quest back on the xbox 360 indie games channel and that at the time lampooned like the games industry's move towards DLC and microtransactions. And that worked really well as well because it forced you to do things like 
your character had no walking animation until you unlocked it with in-game currency, or you could move right but not left until you unlocked the ability to travel in the opposite direction. <laughs> Brilliant. But I think open world game is actually more focused, and because it's a bit more limited in its, in its mechanics and setup, I think it plays better and it's probably a funnier product because of that. Yeah. So if, if you've got access to a computer, it doesn't take much to run it because, like I said, it's just a 2D mini-map. Yeah. But I, I think it's, it's worth a play uh, and it's a freebie, so check it out. Oh, I definitely will. That sounds, that sounds uh, very, very good. Very good indeed. So, shall we move on to the Ian rankings? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Starting this yeah. week, we have Chris's game. Chris, can you please kick us off with your 23rd favourite video game of all flipping time? Okay, get yourself a drink, because uh, this is oh, one of these man. games that I got quite, got quite excited about when I started writing. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Bring it on. Okay. Games are very often defined by their aesthetic, at least when you're kind of describing it to other people. And, you know, that's thinking about things like their visual style or their soundtrack or their character work. And the thing is, though, a game has to have something underneath that. You know, it can be as stylized or as pretty as you like. But if, if the game is dull or if the game is uninteresting or the like underlying experience is lacking, you're, you're not going to have a fun time with it. But today's game, my 23rd favorite video game of all time, is Hotline Miami. I I would describe it as a 10 out of 10 game with an 11 out of 10 soundtrack and visual style. (laughs) Like it it has some of the the best presentation of any game I've ever played. Like it came out not long after the film Drive was gaining kind of quite a lot of plaudits in the cinema for its kind of neon soaked, I don't know, synth wave depiction of Los Angeles. Yeah. And, and Hotline Miami, I think, follows in, in that film's footsteps by being a similarly violent game about repetition and, and glorification of violence and a lot of the kind of themes that are in that film. Hotline Miami is a top-down, stage-based action game, if, if you haven't seen it or played it. If you squint, it could be like an early title in the GTA series, like looking at kind of your character from above with your protagonist sort of pinhead and broad shoulders. But whereas the appeal of early GTA was was the feeling of having like freedom, they were, they were essentially you know the, the groundwork of open world games. Hotline Miami is much more taut and focused, and as I say, it's, it's a stage based experience, so you can't just go wherever you want. Every single stage has pretty much the same setup. You enter a building, uh, your aim is to clear out the goons inside that building by by any means necessary, and then calmly strut out. And without any visual or any audio sort of accoutrements, the core gameplay is fun enough to, you know, make it a good game. But asking you to play like these sections of real intense action to then be rewarded with moments of silence and calm, it works so much better because it has this aesthetic that elevates it above almost any other indie title for me. The whole thing feels like, a, you know, a big trip. It's, it's got lurid colours, it's got sort of gently warping and twisting visuals that, that are always kind of moving. It's got these big chunky pixels and over-the-top blood spatter from, from every impact when you take down these enemies. And this is the real lofty statement here. I, I think it's got my favourite soundtrack of all time in a video game. <gasps> wow, that oh, wow. is a huge claim coming <laughs> from you. And, and this is, I suppose, as a caveat, it's, it's a licensed soundtrack. So the, this is track-based as opposed to like a score. Uh, and there's probably games that, that would fit you know, that moniker much better if I'm talking about, okay, it's got an orchestral score for a game, whereas Hotline Miami is a collection of tracks that, that aim to kind of you know, pull off this, the overall aesthetic of the world. But it has amazing licensed tracks that jump between minimal claustrophobic techno from artists like Moon. It's got spacey, inebriated sort of dirges from an artist called Sun Aurora. 
It's got pounding, driving synthwave from, from artists like El Huevo and, and Perturbator. And none of these names meant anything to me until I played this game. And then it was like this mad dash to, to get hold of copies that I could listen to on the drive to work. Before you clubbed everybody's head in at the school <laughs> with a golf club. Yeah, it, it had to be done. I, I kickstarted this game's soundtrack on vinyl. And that collection is one of my most prized possessions. It's just, it's a beautiful package. And Hotline Miami only recently got a physical release on the Switch and the PS4. But up until being able to own a copy of the game, having that LP collection was enough for me to think like, yeah, I love this game and I've got something on my shelf to represent that. I know you and Minty, like both of you, you're really quite fond of playing games on on mute on the Switch, maybe when there's TV on in the background or something. But Hotline Miami is a game that needs full attention and full volume, honestly. I I don't (laughs) think you can play it any other way. Like, a stage itself can last as little as 30 seconds, in which time you may have run into a building, chucked open a door, sent kind of one of the goons flying into another, finished them both off with, with a baseball bat, collected one of their shotguns to dispense two more approaching enemies, realise you're out of bullets and just launch the empty weapon to take out a third who's just come around the corner, then a narrowly avoided gunshots through an internal glass window to get the jump on one last batch of guys with a machine gun you collected in that mad dash. And it's all so quick and instinctual when you get good at it. And, and when you're successful, that kind of run of violence looks effortless and, and sort of may have taken, though, 30 or 40 attempts to actually get to that point to be able to pull it off. Like it's it's a very hard game, but but most importantly, it's it's a game where a restart after a death is like instantaneous, and and it has to be for a game like this. It, it really has to be. I always felt that it, it felt like you were reloading a gun. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a it was just and back that's in, a back really in. good analogy. You might even make that sound. I'm not sure. <laughs> but that, that, feels like it does. A, it feels like it does. That's a really good analogy. Like nothing annoys me more in a in a game than it taking an age to reload a stage because, by my understanding at least, like if you're on the same stage the core components should just be sitting in RAM, ready for you to, to access. Yeah. Obviously, I'm not a developer. I I, maybe I'm missing something really obvious here, but <laughs> it doesn't make sense where, like, one of the most heinous examples recently was when I played Little Nightmares on the Switch. Oh, my if God. You, if you die, on, on the Switch port at least, it's like, it's over a minute to reload the stage. Yeah. And and sometimes it's reloading the same room you were just standing in. Yeah, that, that was enough to um to get that traded in. Yeah. I was, it made me livid. Yeah, for me, like a couple hours into the game, as the sections start to get tougher, I I didn't carry on for, you know, the same as you. I, I didn't yeah. carry on. But in, in Hotline Miami, there is no downtime. Like you say, it's just that quick reload. And, and you can run into a room, misjudge your approach, be taken down by the first enemy, but be back on the same approach within a few seconds. And certain encounters can get frustrating because it's that kind of game that, that needs you to kind of learn patterns and things like that. But, you know, even when one stage about two thirds of the way through the game probably took me 200 attempts to beat on my first playthrough, <laughs> yeah. it, it still felt like the game was friendly enough because of that quick repeat. If it was 200 attempts with a full minute load in between, the game would have been uninstalled and the Switch in the bin. <laughs> you know, the, the way it presents itself, it's hard to ever get annoyed. And, and a big part of this, again, is, is because of the soundtrack. And there's something about the way, like the action stages in particular in this game, use really oppressive, repetitive techno tracks to, to score the violence with no real swells in dynamic and no real shifts in tempo that it pushes me to just want to restart instantly anytime I fail. And, and once you're in, it really has a sort of zen state similar to the feeling I get when I play Tetris, because obviously Tetris is a lot calmer. You're not being attacked in, in Tetris, but it still feels that way that once I'm locked in, 
I, I don't worry about the stuff outside of what's immediately in front of me. And Hotline Miami does that really, really well. I mentioned like, what, a million weeks ago now that playing Super Hexagon, a huge part of what keeps me playing that is is similarly like the way it hooks you into a zone because of its musical score. And, and whilst that game has a very different chiptune style, there's, there's something about the forward momentum of, of these genres, like most electronic genres, that just makes me kind of want to get to work. Yeah. And, and I die and I might feel frustrated, but the propulsion of the track is enough to make me just think I can be better than this and, and I'm going to keep going. I'm, I'm just, I'm on this track and I'm going for it. It's like the speed at which you do it. It's like you you want to get in before you miss a beat of the track. Yeah. So you can just keep that rhythm going. Yeah. I, th- I think we, like I've mentioned a few times about games that are not uh, explicitly rhythm games, but that feel like you are following a rhythm. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right that Hotline Miami, with with the way the action is so relentless, it has that sensation of like, you know, you're trying to hit 120 BPM. You're trying to just force your way through. Yeah. I, I think Hotline Miami, it's a game about split-second decision-making. And this has come up a few times on my list, especially when I've talked about arcade games, of, of how much I enjoy having to be reactive to things like that. And and with, with Hotline, it's like all the time you're thinking, about, okay, is it best to blind fire here or is it best to, to lock onto an enemy? Or you're thinking, is it best to, to charge with a melee weapon at those guys? Or is it best to scout the map a bit for kind of a machine gun with lots of ammo that I can use to really, you know, take the fight to the enemies of the stage? Or, or when it's best to kind of draw out enemies one at a time by manipulating their kind of hearing radiuses, sort of Metal Gear Solid style? Or when it's best to just throw caution to the wind and, and just try to James Bond the entire floor? It's kind of, <laughs> it makes it a real thrill to play. And and I think it it manages to capture the kind of balletic thrill of like Hollywood action better than almost any other AAA production. You know, I, I think if you were trying to make a film that was like, say like a proper John Wick simulator or something like that, it, it's got to go the route of something like this that feels quick and snappy more than something like, say, the, the Batman Arkham games where all you're ever doing is just pressing punch and just the direction to take out the next guy. Yeah. It's, it's got to be something that feels like, okay, I'm in charge and it, and it's difficult, but I can do this and I can look amazing when I get it right. <laughs> <laughs> One thing to note about this game, and I think it puts a lot of people off when they first play it, is it's tough because not only are the, the mechanics kind of quite specific to how this game wants you to play it, but it's control setup, whether you're playing on the PC or whether you're playing on a pad like on the PS4 or whether you're playing on kind of a hybrid system with a touchscreen like the Switch or the Vita, it takes like a period of adjustment and, and learning to get used to. Because as I mentioned, part of it is kind of like tagging enemies, whether that's kind of using the second stick to move the camera to them, clicking on them with the mouse and, and kind of dragging around the map or or literally using the touchscreen to, to tag them with your finger. You need to start thinking a bit more about like actively planning as you are actively playing and when i beat the game first it was on the pc using kind of a mouse and keyboard and then i beat it again on the playstation 4 a couple years later and in both cases there were times early on where i thought i'm just not getting the hang of this but there was something about kind of the the presentation of the whole thing that made me want to to push forward because i knew i had total control and it's you know, we mentioned in games before, any fuck-ups were on me. It's like the controls <laughs> yeah. are challenging. Not unfair. Yeah, I've died and not succeeded because I haven't inputted that command correctly as opposed to, oh, the game has just done something to kind of screw me out of, of getting through this. As a reward, when you do become more adept, regardless of whether you're playing on, on like I said, the, the PC, the Switch, the PS4, whatever, the game suddenly opens up because you start seeing your grades at the end of every stage start to improve. Uh, and you see the game rewarding you for being gutsy or, or for really getting through things quickly. 
And it's then not just a game about survival, but a game of score chasing as well. And if the game hasn't got its teeth into you already at this stage, this is the point where you can say, okay, I'm going to, re- I'm going to return to those earlier levels with, with you know, newfound skills and knowledge and, and try quicker or riskier strategies. Or I'm going to try and use the, the mask modifiers I've, I've unlocked to change the feel of a familiar stage by adding challenge or restrictions or limitations or whatever. This is a game that, because of it using enemy AI, it's never going to be the same sort of speed game as Monkey Ball, like you mentioned the other week, Jonathan. Mm, yeah. But, you know, there's no way to optimize a game that has these kind of chance elements in it in the same way. But there is absolutely a kind of meta game for Hotline Miami that exists for people that want to push it as much as they can. Because there's always things that you can read. You you can kind of like get heads up to think, okay, well, I know they're going to come around that way if I make a noise on this side of the map. And you can manipulate the AI as you go. And it's, it's a game that's really fun to watch people be good at, which again, is not me because I'm, I'm not great at any games really, but <laughs> it kind of, you know, seeing someone who's really mastered this shows how, you know, tightly the game has been designed, that it can be exploited in this way once you understand the kind of ins and outs of, of how it's been made. Yeah. Lastly, and then I'll shut up, I promise, <laughs> the game has a loose narrative I didn't care about it. <laughs> like it's, it's, the we- it's the weakest point of the whole package for me. The gameplay for me is enough to sell the idea of, of senseless, glorified mayhem. And Hotline Miami tries to sort of pontificate on, you know, the wider implications of, of kind of normalising this sort of Tarantino-esque ultraviolence. But it's a bit sort of foot in mouth the way it goes about it. And I was disappointed that the, the second game, Hotline Miami 2, wrong number, yeah. it, it leans into that far more. And, and I think... They didn't really have a choice because the, the core of the game is basically unchanged between the, the original and the sequel. They, they knew they had a good formula for the actual gameplay uh, and they tried to kind of go further into the game's lore and whatever else. But I just don't care. Yeah. Like, like It's a game that's meant to be just played and enjoyed for, for being in your face. It's meant to be just about sort of the breakneck action of it all. And, and I think the first game is perfect for that. It's It's a faultless experience for for the action i also think the second game is challenging and unfair (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i did not enjoy it the second game has wider stages is is the main issue that there's much bigger open areas and there are some of those in the first but they're kind of offset by a lot more kind of like claustrophobic sort of corridor encounters yeah and you can manage those in a very different way that the second game doesn't always allow you to do so yeah pick up the first one love it if you really want more, the second one is there. But I think everything there is to love about Hotline Miami as a series is in that first game, whether or not you read any of the, the narrative text that goes with it. <laughs> it's not a game for everybody, but it is a game that I think everyone should at least experience because it has such a bold vision for how it wants to kind of portray this world and this type of action. I, I think it's a very special game and one that, as a bit of trivia, was made on uh, Game Maker Studio originally, which is essentially like, you know, not that dissimilar to Games Factory or something we were playing with as kids, Jonathan. Yeah. So, yeah, obviously now it's been ported to modern systems and and spruced up a bit, but the original PC release was essentially one guy in a bedroom. Brilliant. In the same way I said about New Star Soccer the other week, these games that have these towering visions that come out of just single like auto bedroom developers yeah i I just love it it makes me love them so much more (laughs) and yeah we'll see what happens in the future with the franchise i hope it doesn't kind of get reeled out or or rolled out again because it doesn't need it it doesn't need it just play the original uh, and and enjoy shooting people in the face (laughs) i mean the evolution of the series 
is Ape Out. Yeah. That's perfect. I think it's a perfect kind of spiritual sequel because it's it's taking a lot of elements that worked really, really well and added a whole load of different things in there. To, and it's absolutely amazing. Like, it is so good. Like, I remember when I first played Hotline Miami and it was, uh, and I, st- I got stuck on a particular stage and for whatever reason, I put it down and and not, not saying I'll never play it again, but I just, yeah, I, I put it down. I finally then revisited Hotline Miami when I was on my honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sexy game. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I'd certainly, like, reflecting on it, really enjoy the dichotomy of me playing, sat on a beach in the Maldives in literal paradise, beating the ever-living shit out of people. And, like, I've been keeping track of all the games that I've played since starting the podcast and and certainly keeping track of the ones that I think would be in my list now. And even though I had played Hotline Miami before doing the list, it was only when I played it, you know, fairly recently, uh, earlier this year, that I, and I thought to myself, I thought, oh, I, I sort of remembered it the other day and thinking, oh, it's going to be on Chris's list soon, I reckon. <laughs> and uh, it, will cert- it would certainly be on a revision of my list. Yeah. And I think Ape Out would be as well, because Ape Out, like, is, yeah, it's just... Oh, it's, just so fun to play it's so satisfying and um yeah oh, they're just they're great games but hotline miami 2 i was really disappointed with because like you said it focused on a story that i didn't care about yeah and it the way it chopped it up it was like deliberately telling it out of sequence in the style of tarantino but it, for no reason other than <laughs> to do that yeah, yeah and it meant that what story there was was actually quite difficult to follow and I wasn't going to put the effort in to try and follow something I didn't give a shit about. No, like, can't blame you. You know, there's people to kill. <laughs> oh. Well, there we go. Thank you for that, Chris. So, moving on, we have Minty Booth. Minty, can you please tell oof, us about oof, your oof. 23rd favourite video game of all time? Yes, yes I would. Following on with the fairly heavy subject matter of uh, Hotline Miami, for me today, it's a milestone game. It's the first one I ever played. And for a good while, probably the only one I ever completed. So five and a half fairly diverse levels that centre around a single theme of pillaging and plundering various sites of historical and cultural interest, as well as deposing kings, destroying irreplaceable ancient constructs, wiping out indigenous people and murdering unique and wonderful creatures across the world. Armed with nothing but a stick and some hefty firepower-packing allies, the brutality of sacking and looting has never been examined so closely, so painfully, as it has in DuckTales on the NES. (laughs) Excellent. Most people will look back on this game fondly, and for good reason. As I said before, it's five levels of um, diverse scenography centred around the use of your stick as a primary movement mechanic, a stick which you can use to hit things like chests to open them, rocks to bat them at faraway enemies, and barrels to position them for use as stepping stones and the like. You can also use it as a pogo stick to defeat enemies, gain height on jumps, and, you guessed it, open treasure chests. <laughs> a game so simple in its makeup runs the risk of being boring, and while nowadays I could probably beat it in about half an hour, not to blow my own instrument, but a mere 25 minutes off the world record, it's still <laughs> really fun, no matter how many times you go back to it. And you can go back to it again and again and again. You have to. There's no save functionality, which is what stopped me beating Mario 3 for years and years and years. DuckTales is just the right length that you don't need to leave your Nintendo on all night to chip away at it (laughs) over a period of many days. Your adventure takes you through dense Amazon rainforest, 
a spooky castle in Transylvania, the deep African mines, the lofty passages of the Himalayas, and the surface of the moon, where five legendary treasures are hidden. With your help, Scrooge McDuck can become the richest duck in the world. Something I found out yesterday is that the game has three endings. I've seen two of them in person. There's just the standard one that you get when you beat the game. There's the second one when you get the two hidden legendary treasures. But there's also one that has a despondent Scrooge McDuck lamenting the fact that you beat the game without picking up any treasure. Ah. I don't know how you're meant to pull it off, but maybe I'll revisit and give it a go. The endings do have a weird little flourish, though, because whether he's you know jumping for joy at his newfound wealth or like, splashing around in a big pile of coins or <laughs> lamenting his empty coffers, he sort of gets... He'll sort of freeze in place, and then he'll sort of get moved left and then up, right? And due to the limitations of the NES, I assume, he sort of stays there for about five seconds <laughs> before the overlay of the newspaper that acts as sort of like the end credits appears around him. It's weird to describe, and just that that image of him going, has stuck with me for years. Like, it's on YouTube, and it's it's, yeah, difficult to describe, so it's better just to watch it. But of course, the standout element of this is, of this game is the music. Now, no doubt you've heard the theme song to the moon level, that 8-bit classic piece that makes its way into so many top 10 lists. <laughs> it also is the subject of many an extremely okay amateur orchestration. And that one video of the Bichon Frise that's tied to so many balloons that it starts floating. I haven't seen that and I want it in my life. Yeah, oh, I'll put it on the group in a bit. Listen to the rest of the songs. They're all so good. I've been listening to the boss theme for more than 20 years. <laughs> kind of slaps. <laughs> Can't not talk about the remastered edition too, which added cutscenes, voice acting, HD graphics, completely revamped boss battles, as well as a new final level. Level. I have to say, I think it's one of the better remakes out there, even though that last level is absolutely diabolical and so completely incongruous to the feel of the rest of the game. <laughs> the way forward technologies did well with plumping up the original game with mission objectives like uh, finding fuel for Launchpad McQuack's helicopter in the Himalayas, rescuing Fenton and the Gizmo Duck suit on the moon. Oh, Gizmo Duck is my favourite thing. Yeah. I was obsessed <laughs> with Gizmo Duck as a kid. I thought it was literally the coolest thing in the world. Mm. I, I rewatched some of DuckTales uh, on Disney Plus uh, recently and um, it still, oh, still, still, uh, still resonates. It's still, <laughs> still <there. laughs> Yeah, it's good because in the original you just had to find his remote control. But in this one you're like, I've got to find all the pieces of the Gizmo Duck suit, Mrs. Beakley. <laughs> Very good. But they've also remade all the boss battles as well, and some of them are enormous. So they've got a real, really, really good sense of scale. It's very exciting, and they're a little bit more varied now than just jump on Big Mouse's head to win his cheese. <laughs> Apart from the utter horseshit of Mount Vesuvius, the new final level, you never get the feeling they've taken extreme liberties with it. It's still a very faithful remaster, and still quite a good fun game. But that said, it is still eclipsed by the original, despite being a very strong game in its own right. Albeit one that probably wouldn't have as much success if it didn't have the ironclad guarantee of being a remake of one of the best NES games ever made behind it. And there we go, DuckTales. It's my 23rd favourite video game. Oh, fantastic. I've not played the original or the remake. Me neither. Ah. I, I know both are really highly revered because the original is essentially... Is it the same team that did Mega Man within Capcom? Did, did yes. DuckTales? yes. So it's it's always had that heritage, and then way forward have have just kicked out a lot of good two D games in in the last decade, and the Ducktales remake mm. was was one of them. Yeah, yeah. 
So finally, we have my game. Tell us. Jonathan. So I felt quite a weight of responsibility when I was thinking of what to say about this game, because not only is it an incredible game, it's, I think it's quite an important game in terms of video game history, certainly in its genre. And it's also a game that I've shared a lot of with two of our most faithful podcast listeners, one of which being my brother, Alex, the other being my good friend, Andy Smith. Andy will know right now what game it is I'm about to talk about. Because it was the first game that we played together after, you know, we'd sort of met and become friends. And Andy had done me the enormous favour of introducing me to proper board games like Catan and Carcassonne. And it was when playing these that they reminded me a little of my 23rd favourite video game of all time. And I asked Andy if he'd ever played it. He hadn't. And so I was able to return the favour and introduce him to one of the greatest fantasy strategy games of all time. Heroes of Might and Magic 3. Oh, I knew it was. Oh, boy. Now, at this point, I hadn't actively played a lot of Heroes 3, but I had watched my brother Alex play dozens of hours of it as he dove deep into the game growing up. And I had a profound love of the game from from just enjoying it from a, a purely passive perspective. But when I started to play it with Andy, I inevitably started to gain a fuller understanding of the game, a fuller understanding of the strategies needed to be good at the game, and thus a, a deeper appreciation for it. So what is Heroes of Might and Magic 3, I hear you ask? <laughs> well, at its heart, it's a turn-based strategy game set in a fantasy world. You will usually start in control of a main hero and a town, and in that town you can develop all kinds of, of structures and dwellings to recruit different types of troops and creatures to form your army for your hero to lead. And you can then recruit more heroes and upgrade your troops and your buildings to increase your town's defences and slowly sort of amass your forces to, to take over the uh, the map. And on this overworld, you take control of your hero and start to explore and you'll find hordes of monsters guarding treasure and artefacts. You'll find all manner of puzzles and riddles that will lead you to more treasure and perhaps the Holy Grail. Also, you'll encounter heroes and towns owned by your adversaries that you'll have to beat in battle. And battles take place on a fairly simple hex grid layout battlefield. And your individual troops will have different movement capabilities, enabling some to move further across the field of play or be able to fly over obstacles, or some may have ranged attacks. And your hero as well has access to a book of magic spells to influence the flow of the fight. You've also got a huge resource management aspect of the game, and you'll be constantly fighting for control over several resource mines around the map because building new structures and upgrading buildings and dwellings in your town and even buying some of the higher level troops will require additional resources other than gold. And each individual map and each individual part of the overall campaign will have different objectives. Sometimes it will it will be to simply claim ownership of all the settlements of the map or defeat all the enemy heroes. Sometimes it will be to defeat one particular hero or a group of enemies or find a specific piece of treasure. So you, you're constantly juggling all kinds of strategic elements to try and win. Now, I think I mentioned a couple of times before that I'm not really a fan of strategy games. Like I don't really have the right type of brain to process that many strategic things simultaneously. I'm much better when I can just approach a game directly and focus on honing my skills one at a time and gain victory through attrition more than anything else. Which is is why I enjoyed this game much more fully when playing it with people who, I'll be honest, are smarter than me. <laughs> because <laughs> because I, I really enjoy the process of playing Heroes in the same way that I, I really enjoy the process of playing a lot of board games, even if I'm not particularly good at them. 
I mean, it's certainly in terms of, of playing a long-term plan in these games, I'm much better at seeing what I've got in front of me and making a decision and and going from there. And once I started to to forget about trying to win as my main objective and more just enjoy the process, I enjoy a lot more board games and also Heroes of Might and Magic. I love accruing resources and buying troops and upgrading them and developing my town. And I love the atmosphere of the battles. And I absolutely love, 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 love the music. Love. I flipping love it. <laughs> Every different type of town has an incredible theme behind it, which is, is perfect because you obviously spend quite a bit of time in your town sorting, you know, your, your various magical admin out. And the music in the battles is, is is suitably epic and just the general just the general sound design, just the little themes and the the sound effects and oh, just everything. It sounded absolutely, absolutely amazing. Um I just oh just a feast, a feast for the ears. And something I haven't mentioned is is the variety of, of stuff that comes with the different town types. So whilst they all have the same basic structure system, you'll have your, your creature dwellings for like your levels one, two, three, four, five creatures. You'll have your mage guild, which you can advance to level four to get better spells. And you'll have your main citadel, your town hall, the tavern, blacksmith marketplace and such. But depending on what type of town you have, they'll all have their own stylistic twist on them. So you have what feels like I guess like the default theme, which is the castle theme, and your creatures will be swordsmen, pikemen, archers, monks, cavalry, and 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 uh, the highest level troopers is angels and archangels. But then you have the inferno town where you'll be recruiting pit fiends and and hellhounds and and devils. Then you've got the tower theme where you're you're getting gargoyles, golems, genies, and lightning wielding titans. In the swampy fortress theme, there's gnolls and lizards, dragonflies, basilisks, wyverns, hydras. Then there's the beautifully magical rampart theme where you'll get elves and dwarves and centaurs, unicorns, green and gold dragons. Then you've got the very D&D focused dungeon towns with beholders, troglodytes, medusas, manticores, minotaurs, red and black dragons. There was the stronghold, which which I think had my personal favourite piece of music in it, which was just incredibly just building and epic. It was amazing. And, and and this was this like desolate rocky wilderness setting with creatures like wolf riders and orcs, ogres, rocks and behemoths. And finally, you had the, the necropolis with, with all of the skeleton rib caged percussion you can think of. And here you're getting whites and wraiths and vampires and bone dragons and ghost dragons. And there's just so much to play with. And I mean, I've had incredibly memorable experiences with, with each of these towns. It's such a wealth of a beautiful design and art on display in all of them. Another element I, ha I haven't mentioned is that there was also a map designer tool that came with the game. And I did actually manage to make my own map once called Dunces of the Realm. <laughs> and it, <laughs> it was riddled with nonsense that teenage me thought was funny. I mean, it, it, it wasn't brilliantly balanced, I'll say that much, but I was very proud that I actually managed to make a fully playable and at least, I think, slightly enjoyable map. So Andy and I eventually moved on to trying out what was then the most recent game in the series, which was Heroes of Might and Magic 5. And it was, I mean, by and large, the same game. You had the same levels of creatures, although instead of having levels 1 to 5, you would have two types of creature in tier one, two in the second tier, and then a final hero creature like, like the angels or behemoths and devils. The most obvious upgrade was, was the graphics with, with everything kind of realized in 3d, which was, which was fine. I mean, I, I really loved the pixel art of the original, but the 3d rendering of everything had a nice art style. It, it felt quite reminiscent of the chunky polygons of, of Warcraft three, 
And there were some nice environmental effects and battle effects to spruce things up a bit. And after I'd cut my teeth on playing Heroes 3 and Heroes 5 with Andy, I felt a bit more comfortable in taking on Heroes 6 on my own when that came out. And I must have sunk about 50, 60 hours into it on Steam. And, and I had a great time because, you know, I'd, I'd learned enough of the types of strategies to, to employ that I could, I could at least mimic that way of playing the game uh, <laughs> at the very least, even if I didn't have, you know, full understanding of, of why. I, at least I knew some strategies worked and those were the ones I did. <laughs> I don't think my brother ever branched out beyond Heroes 3. And in fact, he hasn't really branched out much in terms of playing other games than Heroes 3 because he's never felt the need to. Like, he still plays it actively and, and there's still more campaigns and, and individual maps to do and he continues to refine his strategies and, and continues to enjoy it. And I do think that the formula of Heroes 3, that's the definitive setup of the game. And whilst, yeah, I've enjoyed the changes and additions in 5 and 6, they they haven't made the game any better. I mean, they haven't made it worse. So, I mean, I was absolutely thrilled when the HD version of Heroes 3 was announced, which came out a few years ago now. It just sharpened it up a little bit for modern screens and modern devices. And, and that's that's all it needed. You know, everything else was exactly the same. I've got it installed on my iPad Pro and enjoy controlling it with the deftness of, of the Apple Pencil. And it's, it's a wonderful game to dip into now and again. Hero 7 is out and has been out for a few years now. And I do plan on getting that at some point, especially now I've, you know, I've got a nice, nice epic desktop computer to run it on. So yeah, again, I'll add that to my wish list. Keep an eye out for it for the next time it goes on sale. And I'll happily report back on that when I do. I mean, it, it really is... It's a phenomenal series. It's it's spawned a lot of, of spin-offs like um, Might and Magic Clash of Heroes. It was actually brought... It, it was its own thing, Heroes of Might and Magic, until the other Might and Magic franchise sort of, I think, just took ownership of it. And now it's called Might and Magic Heroes as opposed to Heroes of Might and Magic. So it fits under that umbrella. But I, I'm so glad that, that people hold Heroes 3 up as the pinnacle of, of the series. And it gets the love that it so earnestly deserves and it's it's difficult to describe how satisfying it feels to play it, you know, to slowly uncover more of the map, to, to finally reach the final dwelling upgrade to get the best troops, to find all of the obelisks that are scattered around the map, to finally track down the location of the Holy Grail, how every battle feels monumental, either in victory or defeat. And given how many devices it's possible to play Heroes 3 HD on these days, I would really encourage everyone to give it a go. Even if strategy games aren't entirely your thing, this game, for me, certainly proved to be the exception to that rule. And yeah, it's my 23rd favourite video game of all time. It's a game I remember Alex playing at your house when we were young and I'd come over. Yeah. I mean, with these kind of, uh, you know, fantasy... Are they fantasy? Yeah, like high fantasy strategy yeah. games, essentially. There's a reason why your April Fool's game when we did that episode, you know, months ago now, <laughs> seemed so believable. Yeah. And it's because when when you talked about that, it was called Ancient Kingdom 2, The Fire of Old Legends. <laughs> I had to look it up. But the way you described it is, yeah. is not that dissimilar to how you talk about, obviously, Heroes of Might and Magic. Yeah. And, and there is, there's something about the depth required of these games, which is what's always put me off. Yeah. So maybe if, if you think three is actually accessible enough to try in, in the HD version, yeah. it could be something that one, one day I give a blast, but it's always been a genre that's kind of escaped me just because 
I, I don't have the backing to understand where to begin, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it helped, like I said, it helped that I was sort of um, weaned into the game from greater minds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, I, I would have been floundering a bit. And, and I have been when, when I had tried to play it on my own. And I just, I just didn't get it. I just didn't quite, yeah, I just didn't quite get it. So there we have it. Another three games from us three gents here at Our Three Cents. First of all, we had... Hotline Miami. And then we had... DuckTales. <laughs> and finally, Heroes of Might and Magic 3. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do engage with us on our social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash our3cents. Chat to us about the podcast. Talk to us about games that you're playing. Suggest things you might like us to talk about in a future episode. Reach out to us on Instagram as well, at o3cpodcast. Find us on YouTube. Search for our3cents. Subscribe to the channel. Get onto Twitch, twitch.tv slash o3cpodcast. We're doing loads of stuff at the moment, certainly while lockdown's going on and before I have my first child. So make the most of <laughs> this very productive period from us. Uh, <laughs> you can also reach out to us individually. You can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. I'm at Chaz underscore Hodges. And I am at Clement underscore and please do check out our Patreon page if you'd like to support us a little bit more. Patreon.com slash Our3Cents and do consider pledging a few pennies our way. We would be most appreciative. If you can't support us financially at the moment, that's absolutely fine. But it would be great if you're able to share the podcast as well. And we appreciate that support. And please do join us next week for our 22nd favourite video games of all time. Oh, it's going to be a good one. DuckTales, more like MuckTales. Hey! Shut up. And now, a word from our sponsor. And now, a word from our sponsor. And now, a word from our sponsor. Welcome to Casual Magic, the show where we explore the fun side of Magic the Gathering. I'm your host, Shivam Putt, and each week we delve into everything from casual format to explorations of creatures and card types to interviews with designers of the game. At Casual Magic, we believe that it just isn't magic without the gathering. Come along and play! Hey there, this is Jeremy Parrish, and if you're a fan of classic video game soundtracks, or if you just love 20-minute rock epics about war-ready armadillos that battle Catholicism, you should listen to Alexander's Ragtime Band. Join the power trio of myself, Elliot Long, and James Eldred each month as we talk about the most pretentious music of all, progressive rock, right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network.